Good morning, Maplecrest. Oh, okay. Would we be able to... Yeah, that's great. Today we're talking uh, about forgiveness. It's the first time I get to talk about forgiveness, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's a great topic, foundational for our faith. And I want us to preach out of Isaiah 43:25, uh, which reads in the New King James... I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sin, and I will not remember your sins. I'm going to read that again. I, even I, so this is the Lord speaking, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, and this is the interesting part, this is why I like this scripture, for my own sake, for my own sake. Isn't that interesting? He does it for his own sake. And I will not remember your sins. You know, some of us, sometimes when you read the Bible, you kind of shy away from scriptures that don't initially make sense to you. Because you're maybe afraid that the Lord won't make sense at the end of it. And it's going to be like, oh God, I don't know. What did you say here? But one thing that I've really come to appreciate is that those are sometimes the scriptures that really give you an insight into God's character. And when you find those scriptures that don't initially make sense, if you really dig into them and pray about them, sometimes you get this really great gem. And uh, I've come to trust God, which is probably a good thing, that his word makes sense. And sometimes when it doesn't make sense, that doesn't mean that he's not making sense. It means that I don't make sense. And uh, my understanding is off. And so that's often where I find my nuggets. Okay. Well, forgiveness. It was in 1985, at the end of November, that Candace Dirksen, my sister, at the age of 13, went missing. I don't often talk about Candace, but today I'm going to. It was on January 17th, after seven weeks of intensive search, January 17th, that Candace Dirksen's body was found. After Candace's death, Wilma, her mother, my mother, had an experience where Candace came to her in the night. It's probably not quite the way way to say it, but anyway, she came, Candace came in kind of like a, a vision or something. Maybe Wilma can tell us exactly what that felt like and looked like. But basic premise here is that Candace came to her and Candace said, hey mom, I'm okay. Very reassuring. It's a blessing. gave us a discernment that, that she was in heaven. Okay, fast forward. It was in 2010, almost 25 years later, in the summer, Natasha and I were in BC, and we were preparing to be missionaries with uh, MB Mission. We grew up, I grew up, Mennonite Brethren. And we, as part of our preparations, were invited to spend a night with a care group. And at that point, we were just getting into like listening prayer, maybe not just getting into it, it had been a couple years already, but we were getting into like, you know, the prophetic and things like that. And uh, this care group was, you know, kind of sneaky prophetic. Like they were like, hey, you know, like, uh, we'll pray for you. And then you get there and they're like, ha ha ha, you know, uh, <laughs> we got you. Uh, anyway, not that we do that with anything. Um, but uh, so they were prophesying over us, which was fine with us. We were, we were into that. That wasn't a huge thing. Actually, we were kind of excited, if I remember. 
And we got some prophetic words, and like often happens, many of the prophetic words I've forgotten, but every once in a while, God gives you something that's life-changing. And that night, we got, for me, a life-changing prophetic word. They were thought that they were prophesying for us as missionaries. And so the prophetic word was, take off your sandals, you're going into, onto holy ground. And it went on to say, you're going into a place where you need to be sensitive. You need to be prepared and to be aware of what's happening. And you're not going to be able to do that, as the analogy goes, with your shoes on. You're going to be less sensitive. So take your sandals off. Take your shoes off so that you can be aware of what's going to happen. Because what's going to happen is going to be very important and subtle. There's going to be things about it that aren't going to be obvious. And you're going to need to be extra aware in order to get the hints. Sounds very good for a missionary. But then he said something that was very interesting to me. He said, this prophetic word actually came a long time ago. Months ago. Not years, but months ago. I've never heard anybody give me a prophetic word where they told me that they had gotten the prophetic word months before and had held on to it. They may have given it to somebody else, but I'm not sure. But anyway, this, this prophetic word came to mind for us again. And they said, we actually got this prophetic word months ago, on January 17th, which was very interesting to me, because that was the day that Candace went missing. So that was in the summer, the summer of 2010. Sorry, that wasn't the date that she went missing, it was the date that she was found. And again, they thought that this word was about the mission trip, but January 17th had meaning for me because of Candace, and it was only about six months later that we would have the first trial for Mark Edward Grant. And the date of the trial was also January 17th. So, we have the date that she was found being January 17th. We have the date of the trial being January 17th. And here I have a prophetic word about walking onto holy ground that was given to the person on January 17th, about five months before they actually gave me the prophetic word. So me and my discernment, I said, I don't think this is about mission trips. I don't think that's where the holy ground is going to be. So when I went into the courtroom on January 17th for the first time, it didn't feel like I was going into courtroom. It had all of the look of a courtroom, but it felt to me like we were going into something else. We were going onto holy ground. And I had to be extra aware, extra sensitive, to know the subtleties of what was going to happen in that place. Because the things that I had to find important in that place weren't obvious. It was during the court, during the trial, which was extended, especially for court things. Normally they're done in a day or two or maybe a week. This was like six weeks or something, I don't know. Very extended process. I learned more about Candace than I had ever known before. And during the time, I actually took my shoes off. I would sit down, and I would take my shoes off, and we would listen. 
to the story of Candace in her last moments. And as we would walk in the halls and as we would talk to the people and the witnesses and the witnesses, friends or people that would, there was lots of people coming through talking who were from that time, who knew things from that time, we would learn different things. Here are some of the things that I learned about Candace from the trial. I learned that she suffered terribly, more than I'd ever thought. There's always these platitudes that are given to you if you're a victim of crime. Died quickly, painlessly. I hope that's true, but it's not always true. And it wasn't true here. She was basically tortured. In Job 1.11, it says, But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. That's the devil talking. If you touch Job and don't bless him, if you take away your hedge of protection, he will curse you. Later in Job, in Job 2, verse 9, it says, His wife, Job's wife, said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? This is after the horrible things have happened to Job. Are you still maintaining your integrity, his wife says? Curse God and die. Curse God and die. I used to think of Candace as a victim, as somebody who was caught up in the winds of fate and had something horrible happen to her, and we have somehow scrounged afterwards to try to make some meaning out of it try to make something good come out of something bad. Don't get me wrong, it's bad. But I've come to have a different perspective on Candace's last moments. We know, at least I've discerned, that she's in heaven. She survived. Maybe before I get to the point of that, I'm going to tell one more story. There was a lady who came to Wilma who talked about Candace's last moments, and she said to us, that she had been sexually assaulted by Mark Edward Grant. And that she said that she wished she could have been like Candace. Because she survived and Candace didn't. And so she knows that Candace said no. But she hadn't said no. And she regretted it. And she said she wished she could have been strong like Candace. You start to get a hint if your shoes are off sometimes about what's happening in that moment. The subtleties of what happened in those last moments. The torture, the denial, the faith, and going to heaven in the end. I used to think that she was a victim. But I've realized that dying for your faith doesn't just look like being martyred. Dying for your faith means coming to earth, experiencing suffering, and not cursing God and dying. So many more of us are going through that test, the test of Job, just like Candace did. She was a different kind of martyr. In her 13-year-old mind, She didn't curse God and die. She said no. She stood for her faith, even in those moments of darkness. And she came out the other side. 
There's even evidence that God had prepared her for that moment. She talked to Wilma beforehand. What if I die? It was just a few months before. And then Wilma said, God will continue your ministry if you die. As if you had lived. Hmm. God was preparing her. God brought her to that moment, not as a victim, but as somebody who overcame. It made me realize that I was proud to be a Dirksen, that I had a heritage in faith, that I had a role model as I went into mission. When I went into the courtroom, it felt like holy ground. The courtroom had turned from being something that was about an offender to being something that was about a champion. It felt like there was a cloud of witnesses in that room. It felt like everybody was there to pay homage to the last moments of somebody who had overcome. Somebody who had died for their faith, had died in their faith. It was a prophetic moment. Today we're talking about prophetic forgiveness. An experience changes based on your perspective. Experience can change from something that's almost unbearable into something glorious if you change your perspective. Now that story that I told you isn't really about forgiveness, not in that moment anyway, but it has a principle I think that's really key to forgiving like the Lord forgives, and that's what I want to talk about. There's lots of strategies to forgive, but today I want to talk about how God forgives, or at least it's hard to say that without feeling like blasphemous or something that I'm going to tell you how the Lord forgives. But my best next insight into how the Lord forgives. Before I talk about how God forgives, though, I'm going to talk a little bit about how humans forgive. And I have a little bit of insight into this because I'm a psychologist. And so I'm going to talk about some of the strategies that we use. One of them is to recommend it. Forgiveness is recommended. It's not really recommended first because clients don't like it, but it is recommended because it's a pain reliever. It's like an aspirin. Neurologically, it's like an aspirin in your brain. If you want less pain, forgive if you can. It's good for you. It lowers the pain in your brain overall, which makes sense. God recommends it and it's good for you. God recommends good things for your life. That's somewhat helpful, but almost not helpful at all. I don't see many people coming to me and saying, Cyrus, I didn't know that forgiveness was helpful. Thank you. Now I can forgive. If only somebody had told me that it was good for my brain. Well, now I forgive all the time. I haven't had that conversation yet. I'm waiting for it. I still say it to people. But it doesn't seem to be that crux of the problem. Another one. When we're helping somebody to forgive, often we're not actually helping them to forgive. If you go to a therapist and you ask them to help you to forgive, typically what they will do is help you to empathize. They will help you to change your memory of the situation into something that's less objectionable. They will help you to understand the other person's point of view. Why would they do such a thing? Maybe they had a reason. Maybe if we can understand their perspective, we can accept their behavior. Not accepted in this acceptance is a terrible word. Just because it has 
I think it should be two different words. I haven't come up with those words yet. I will one day. But anyway, acceptance in the sense that I can move on with this, not that I think it's okay. Anyway. They will try to change it. They will try to minimize it. They will try to help you understand that other person, and they will likely use the word acceptance with you. That sometimes helps. But oftentimes it's actually, well, it's not actually forgiveness, because what you're doing, well, maybe it's forgiveness, but what you're doing is you're making something easier to forgive by actually changing the offense. So they're not helping you to forgive something terrible, they're helping you to make it less terrible so that you can use what forgiveness you already have. But if you run into somebody and they're like, no, Cyrus, there is no excuse. There is no understanding this person. What they did was horrible, and I will not minimize it. The therapist will cough, look away, (laughs) and read another book afterwards. Because there's really hardly anything that you can do when somebody holds on to the seriousness of the offense. How do you forgive a serious offense? I mean, most people can forgive small things. Therapists can help with that. We have to forgive every day. You can't get through the day hardly without having to forgive many times. And people can do that. But I don't see, and I'll use that word, I've thought about this, I don't see people holding on to the seriousness of the offense. And it's a serious one that causes lifelong consequences. And actually forgiving it in a serious way without God. I don't see that. I see approximations of it. I see not thinking about it. But I don't see forgiveness without God in serious matters. And I think that's really interesting. Usually it's some type of empathy, minimization, Denial and acceptance. Moving on. But not forgiveness. And that's pretty much it. You might see some other language used, but that's just about everything that a therapist has to offer. Okay. So now I want to talk about how God forgives. And to do that, I want to set this up by talking about perspective. People come to me And they ask me, Cyrus, why did this happen? Why did people do this? A couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you remember, there was a problem at a liquor mart. The crime in liquor marts has gone up in Winnipeg. People have realized that they won't do anything to stop you. You can just walk out with the liquor. And all of a sudden, there's like groups of people coming in and taking liquor. It's not just one person anymore. Like groups are coming in. I think it at least happened once. And when something significant happens, I often get a call from CJOB and they're like, Cyrus, will you come on and explain why this happens? And I'm like, sure, I can explain it. I always say yes, then try to figure out what to say after. (laughs) Hopefully they give me a few minutes to prepare. So I was on and I was talking about why would a group of people come into a liquor mart and steal? And I came to one of the most standard ways you explain awful, incomprehensible, illogical behavior, and that is they had a different perspective. It made sense to them. It made sense from their perspective. If you look at almost the, if you look at most of the worst things that humans do, if you take their point of view, if you take their worldview, their cultural, their moral standard, it makes sense. Why did he kill the cop? Well, When I went to Stony Mountain, killing a cop is like the top of the heap. 
Like, you're in charge of the prison if you're a cop killer. If you sexually assault a child, you're in the bottom. You have to be kept in isolation because they will hurt you. They have their own moral standard in there that's very different than ours. So is it illogical? It's logical for them. It's just not logical for us. And if you're a young person and you're part of a group, usually opinions go stronger if you're part of a group. And if among that group, everybody likes liquor and you're more in leadership in that group, if you go out and you do these things, you're accepted, well, then you go and you do it. I remember talking to somebody whose family was part of a gang, probably for generations, and I said to them, do you realize that this is criminal? And they said, you're talking about my family. What are we going to do for food? We have to do this. They, they almost couldn't even fathom the fact that everything that their family was doing was criminal. They took offense to it. I was like, this is black and white. Like, it's the criminal code. But it's a different perspective for them. It's like going and harvesting grain. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't make any sense. How could they see the world that way? I'm glad I don't see the world that way. Well, now let's think about how God sees you. How illogical is our behavior from heaven? If we looked at things like how God looked at things, really, we would be behaving quite differently, I think. Quite differently. Luckily, God understands this much better than I do. His mercy anyway. Okay. So, if you want to forgive like God, you have to see things like God. If you want to go and steal from a liquor mart, you have to change your perspective. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard. It'd be really hard for me to go and steal from a liquor mart. But, if I spent a lot of time trying to understand and bring into myself the perspectives of these young people and I put myself in their society and it was like, I want to do well, I would be stealing from a liquor mart. I'm, a, I'm an achiever. That's my personality. I would be stealing from the biggest liquor mart out there. I'd be, I'd be like the top of the liquor mart thieves if I was part of their culture. It's important to, do, to choose what your perspective is. Fortunately, that's not mine. There's two ways to forgive if you take the Lord's perspective. If you don't, all you have is obedience. I have nothing against obedience. If you don't take the Lord's perspective, well, then it's a mystery and you're going to have to obey because he said to. But if you take his perspective, it's a lot easier. We talked about the first perspective last week when we were talking about how to accept forgiveness. If you take the Lord's perspective, you can have a lot of empathy for sinners because you are one. From his perspective, there's not a lot. I mean, from us, our differences in sin look so big because we're like in it. But if you start flying in a plane, you'll notice that the taller buildings look pretty similar to the shorter buildings. We have a pilot here, is that right? There's not such a big difference between a second-story house and a first-story bungalow if you're a thousand feet in the air. Doesn't look so different. Me being a little bit taller than you, not such a big deal from heaven. We kind of like, oh, I wouldn't do that sin. Well, from God's perspective, it's all pretty much the same. So if you look at him, look at earth, if you look at us from God's perspective, it helps you to empathize. It's like, oh, wow, now that I understand that God sees it all the same and how he's so much higher than me, maybe I'll pause before I don't forgive you. 
Otherwise, he might not forgive me. I've been there too. And he makes the point in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. The story of the talents. I'll summarize it because it's a little bit long just to read. There was a man who owed 10,000 talents, but he was not able to pay. And he said, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then the master said to the servant, Okay, I will, I will forgive your debt. Then that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Not even talents. I think it's a pretty big difference. And he went to the servant who owed him a hundred denarii and he took him by the throat and he said, Pay me what you owe. Threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. Well, the king heard about this and he said, You wicked servant, I forgave you the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due. If we see things from God's perspective, we've had our debts forgiven, so we should pay the people who have debts to us. We should forgive them. So, if you look at it from God's perspective, all of a sudden forgiveness kind of becomes a ouch, okay, I get it. I've been there. That's usually where the story on forgiveness stops because, hey, isn't that good enough? We just have to get in touch with our own sin and it's much easier to forgive others. Which is one of the big reasons I think Christians have the corner market on forgiveness. If you can really get in touch with your own sin it becomes an easy flow to forgive other people. And that's what we focused on last week. However, when I was thinking about this, I was like, hey, if that's how we're supposed to forgive, how does God forgive? How does, he didn't have a debt. He doesn't forgive from an empathy like, oh, I'm like you. He's not like us. He has no debt. So how does he forgive? Because if we want to be really good at forgiving, we should probably think about that. The more we can think like God, the more we can flow like him easily. And I don't know about you, but I would rather flow easily in forgiveness rather than be obedient. Obedience is a good place to start. Nothing against it, but it gets tiring. It was amazing how in the trial of Mark Edward Grant... My change in perspective completely changed my feelings. We see the situation differently. And one of the big hints on how God forgives, I believe, is in Isaiah 43, 25, which is the first verse I said. I, this is the Lord speaking, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He says this word, he says these words, my own sake. What is he talking about? Now, the interpretation that I hear when, it, when I read it, you know, when you read about this verse, is faithfulness. He's faithful to forgive. It sounds good at the beginning, but it makes absolutely no sense. And I'll tell you why. It makes sense from a human perspective to say that God is faithful to forgive. It's kind of like he didn't realize what he was getting into. Why does he forgive? Because he has to. He made an agreement. It's kind of like we would say, like, I got stuck in this contract. And I'm faithful to myself. I don't lie. Shoot. 
I didn't realize they were going to sin this much. But I'm faithful. So I'm going to be true to myself and I'll forgive them. Sure, he is faithful. And if I'm sure if God got stuck in a bad contract, that he would honor it. But I also think that he's smart enough not to get into a bad contract. Wouldn't you agree? I don't think that we have to like trick God into forgiving us by saying, Hey, I know I really sinned. And I know you wouldn't forgive me if you had a choice. But you're faithful. See, it says right here. I gotcha. I don't think you're going to say gotcha to God. So he is faithful. So he's true to himself. But I don't think that we got him in a contract. In fact, I think he knew that we were going to sin before he got into the contract. Which is important to remember when you make a mistake. He committed to you. And you might surprise yourself with your sin. But you're not going to surprise him. He knew what he was getting into when he let you into the kingdom. So I don't think faithfulness is what he's talking about here. Now what he is talking about is hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine what I think he's actually talking about here. He did it for his own sake. He did it for his own sake. What could God see being worth forgiving? That he would actually benefit from something for his own sake, for his own good. What would it could be? Us. It's just hard to think of yourself. Who here has that much self-esteem? Right? You just don't think of that at first. He must have got stuck at a contract because he wouldn't want me. I can't be what he's talking about there. I believe that when he says he's forgiving us for his own sake, he's actually saying, I'm forgiving you so that I have the benefit of having you in my kingdom. For my own sake, for my own benefit, I am going to forgive you. I would never say this if I didn't have a ton of scripture to back it up. It's hard to imagine that he would think of us like that. And it goes against the grain, but he says it over and over. He died for us. What more proof do we need that he actually loves us that much? He calls us his friends. He calls us his bride. If my son said to me, Dad, can I go die for my bride? I'm going to do it for my own sake. Well, you got into the contract. Looks like you're stuck. You got to go die. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm going to go die on the cross for my own sake because I want my bride. I think that makes sense. That makes sense with his character. That makes sense with the fact that he knew what he was getting into. He knew what he was getting into. I keep saying that. Have you noticed that? He knew what he was getting into. How do you know what you're going to get into? By being prophetic. You know what you're getting into by being prophetic. That's why I titled this Prophetic Forgiveness. If you want to forgive like God, you want to engage in prophetic forgiveness. You want to know what you're getting into. Romans 5, 8 says, But he demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now it's implying that while we were sinners, it was harder to forgive. It's harder to forgive somebody if they're still sinners. He loved us, but I don't think he actually had to die for us completely. I mean, he did die for us while we were sinners. The Bible's right, you know, for sure. But he had a benefit. He had a prophetic knowledge I don't know if it would be called prophetic if it's for God, but for the sake of this sermon, he had a prophetic knowledge. He wasn't dying for us only because as we were sinners, he had a knowledge of who we would be 
after he forgave us. And he did it for his own sake. I'll use an analogy of a seed. When you, when you take a seed to a gardener, they often smile. Look at this, I got you seeds, and they'll smile. And they'll say thank you. It's valuable. They'll pay money for this stuff. You go to the store, they sell these things. Why would you ever buy something so tiny and ugly? They're tiny and ugly things. Have you ever actually looked at a seed? They're dead. They have no life in them. They are no benefit at all as a seed. I've never seen, maybe in art, I think I've maybe seen some people use seeds in art. That's just about it. If you wanted to make some kind of statement, I don't know, you can maybe put seeds on a painting. They have almost no usefulness, maybe as food. You can eat seeds. Boy, you need a lot of them though. It's not a nice way to treat a seed either, to eat it. Seeds are, don't have value unless you look at them prophetically. They're not smiling because they got a seed. They're smiling because they got a plant. But the seed's not a plant yet. You don't see the seed, you see the plant. That's why they smile. They're happy prophetically. So, if I was to apply this to me, why would I forgive Mark Edward Grant? And I believe I do have to forgive him. I don't know 100% that he actually murdered Candace. And I realize that after many, many trials, he was eventually not convicted. But in my heart, I still need to forgive him because in my heart, he killed Candace. So how would I forgive Mark Edward Grant? I can't forgive him as a seed. It's ugly. It's worthless. It hurts people. Not just Candace, but other people. We learned all about Mark Edward Grant. Lots of stuff. He escaped from prison a couple of weeks before Candace went missing and went back to prison for something else a couple of weeks after. A black dead seed. But if I look at him from heaven, he looks different. If I look at him from heaven, he's a friend. Prophetically, he's somebody that I can enjoy for the rest of eternity. Isn't that weird? Isn't that different? Why would I forgive him? Because he's a brother. He has the potential to shine for eternity in God's kingdom. This is the kind of seed that we're talking about here. A seed that God would die for while still a seed. A son of Christ. When I look out at you guys, and I think about being a preacher, and I think about being a pastor, I mean, you guys are great the way you are. I'm sure you don't look nothing like a seed. But I don't preach to seeds. You guys are all wearing white robes. You guys are all brilliant gems in heaven when I preach to you. It is such an honor to teach people 
like yourselves. People who have such a high place in heaven that you would be like this even on earth. That you would give it all and be part of a church like this that's like prophetic. That's willing to be and do humiliating things in order to love God. It is such an honor to be your pastor. To think that you would come here and listen to me. That is who I preach to. Being a pastor is easy if you are a prophetic pastor. It is such an honor and a blessing. You guys are great too. Even in this form. I do enjoy you. Very much. But I have to say that the true motivation comes from your prophetic reality. So when we forgive, we can't actually forgive Grant. I don't believe it's actually the appropriate word. We use the word, I don't mind using the word, but I don't think we're actually forgiving him. I've had no sign so far that he's actually repenting. I don't mind the word because I think we are offering him forgiveness. In the same way that God has forgiven the world, in the same way he's offering forgiveness to the world, we are attempting to forgive in that sense of like offering forgiveness to Grant. I think a more appropriate thing to say would be that we're loving Grant. You love your enemy. God loves the world, even though they haven't accepted him. He loves his enemies. He loves the Antichrist spirit people in the world because they're seeds. So we love Grant. And we love him. I find it easier to love him when I think about him in heaven. I, think I, find, I find it easier to offer him forgiveness when I think about him as the son of God. And I don't even have to worry about justice because God's going to take care of that. So all I, I don't have to worry, oh, well, what if, I, what if he doesn't get into heaven? God's going to take care of that. I'm not called to be an administer of God's justice. All I have to worry about is offering seeds life. Okay. So how do you forgive? Stage one, obey. He knows better than you. He's proven himself in the past. If you don't get it, just obey. It'll be tiring, though. If you want to obey like God, start looking from his perspective and realize you've done it too. That's a very human perspective, but God endorses it. You've got the God check mark. He's got parables about it. You've sinned too. If you get in touch with your own sin, it'll be easier to forgive somebody else's. But the third, and the highest I've found, is to forgive somebody because you love them. God forgives because he loves God forgives because he wants to be with us. I want to be with Mark Edward Grant. I want a relationship with Mark Edward Grant. It will be so beautiful to hug Mark Edward Grant, to welcome him into God's kingdom, to spend eternity with him in the way that God has planned. And that makes forgiveness easy. As long as I can keep in a prophetic place over his life. And that is how we practice prophetic in our church. We see them how God sees them. And even when people come in and they're broken and they've done horrible things, we can call out the way that God sees them. And we can call out the destiny that God has for their life. And we can love them because they're beautiful seeds of God. He doesn't make mistakes. There is a destiny for Mark Edward Grant. Let's pray. Lord, 
thank you for this church. Thank you for creating a place where we can understand you from your perspective, where we can learn about that. Thank you for showing us and revealing more and more. And I pray for greater and greater revelations in order to help us to forgive easily. I want to move in easy forgiveness. I don't want it to be hard. I don't want it to be hard. And Lord, I pray that you would release easy forgiveness in this church, in this place. Amen.